Welcome to the ASAP Club mini podcast series. I'm Jennifer Schwartz, the lucky one who gets to interview outstanding mentors and founders about the entrepreneurial journey. I'm a learning specialist and leadership trainer, and also a proud alum of the Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship Master's Program at LSE. This series is intended to accompany the digital toolkit filled with highly curated practical tools and resources to jumpstart your venture. Welcome to the episode, Ideas Are Golden, So Bring On The Gold Rush, How to Move From Idea to Action. This is focus one of the digital toolkit. We start with this section because we know that taking the first steps can be the most daunting. You have a cool idea, but now what? How do you know if your idea has potential and it's worth all the efforts you are about to invest in it? Well, there's only one way of knowing, by validating your idea via insights and evidence gathered. So with that in mind, we interviewed founder of Orbit, Biliana Frey, as well as innovation consultant and trainer, Jamie Q of Studio Zao, to learn from their experiences on what you can do to move your idea forward. A bit about our interviewees. Jamie is the founder and managing partner of Studio Zao, the London headquartered innovation studio, helping organizations apply entrepreneurship to drive innovation, growth, and resilience. He started out his career co-founding an edtech venture after he graduated from the London School of Economics. We also speak to Biliana Frey. Biliana is the co-founder and CEO of Orbit.ai, a B2B networking platform helping community managers create exponential value for their members through curated one-on-one connections. After she graduated from the London School of Economics, she had a diverse career from investigating organized crime to international finance. Now she's based in New York. She's been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Thrive, Crunchbase, and many more. So let's dive right in. Let's start with you, Jamie. How do you know your idea has potential? We should first start with delineating between what an idea is. Most of the time when we wake up and we have an idea for something, it's usually like an idea for a new app or a website or a software or a tool or or a new service or a product. And those are what personally I call solution ideas because they're a solution to something. And in the work that we do, whether it's with large organizations helping internal entrepreneurs in organizations or whether, you know, it's advising entrepreneurs on startup businesses, the very fundamental thing that we always say is step back from the solution idea that you have and think about the problem that you're trying to solve with that solution idea and try and understand that problem as best as you can and investigate that, explore it, validate your assumptions around this problem who has it, why they have it, how they're currently looking to solve this problem and what's not working around that solution. Therefore, this kind of problem-first approach is the way that I personally like to think about whether or not a solution idea actually has legs. The very first question you want to ask yourself is, am I the only one who thinks that? So spending time to say, hey, this is the idea that I have, but before I jump straight into the idea, which is a very human instinct, being able to step back from that and say, who is it supposed to help in what way? And noting down all of these beliefs that you have, these assumptions that you have around the target customer, around the pain points they have, around how they're currently dealing with these pain points, et cetera. And using customer discovery and understanding interviews to go and test and validate your assumptions through asking people questions about their experience to understand whether what you believe to be true really is true. And that really is the first step. That's going to be the real proof because if you can then consistently see that 
through all these meetings and interviews that actually the need is there, then that's really what will prove to you with real evidence that your idea has potential. Because usually from my experience and from working with a large number of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, about 70 to 80% of people who are working on an idea will go through that phase of interviewing and speaking with target users, target customers, and realize that they need to change their idea. They realize what they originally had woken up with as a thought actually isn't going to be viable because they didn't fully understand what the real need is or why. So it's very revealing and it's a very important first step. Yeah, definitely. So I'm wondering if we could actually dive a little bit into the practicality of it. We talked about testing and we talked about interviewing, but can you give me your favorite tools in the toolbox for how to validate those assumptions that you have? Choose one or two of them and say, how would you go about doing that? So the most fundamental one is, as I mentioned earlier, a customer discovery interview. It's also probably the easiest to do because you don't need a lot of resources to go about doing it. So let's say, for example, you have an idea for a new product or a service and you sit down and to put that down on paper, you realize that who you're really trying to help are this particular customer segment and you're really trying to help them deal with these frustrations or difficulties in their lives through this new product or service. You would then want to go and speak to people who fit that profile. What you put down on paper is what your beliefs are, what your assumptions are, and now it's time to go and verify whether they're true. It is a test. It doesn't maybe feel like a test, but it is a test because you're putting an assumption to be verified or not. And you may speak to 30 people and maybe only one of them reflects back to you the type of things that you thought were true. And 29 of them say, well, no, not really. I don't actually have a problem with that. The real problem I have is this thing. Or maybe they might say, yes, I do have that problem, but I deal with it pretty well with with this workaround or this hack that I put together. And I'm not really interested in anything else. So even though they may have a problem, they may not be willing to pay for a solution that you build. So it's all these sorts of insights that you then gather from doing a customer discovery interview. And this is a test that, like I said, is very easy. It's very simple, but you do need to go into it with some ground rules. So probably the best resource is to read the mum test. It's a very small book. It explains how you go about doing it. You can't be asking leading questions. The whole point of this is to explore the pain points. So you shouldn't ever really talk about your idea, your solution or your product or service idea. And you want to peel back as many layers as possible. So you want to understand why they feel this way. And when was the last time they felt that way and why that was and Again, concrete examples so that you can walk away from those meetings with effectively a good library of data, because this is what it's all about, is gathering evidence. So now let's get to some other creative ways that you can test an idea. The classic is the interview. You find some potential users who might similarly be experiencing the pain point, ask them some questions, but remember, make sure that the way you ask the questions is fitting and not leading with an assumption already. Can you give us some other approaches to diversify other than interviews? Just very quickly to mention another one, which is also on the cheap and fast end, is quite simply doing desk research. We don't tend to think of that as a test, but it is because you're trying to get information to verify your assumptions. One of the other ones that are a bit more resource intensive, but also probably going to give you more definitive evidence, will be the ones where you actually put a solution or a concept in front of people. 
as I mentioned earlier, with the customer discovery interviews, you're not showing them the product that you have or the app that you have, because at that stage, you're trying to validate the fundamentals, which is usually around the pain points. Then it gets to a certain point where you're pretty certain the pain point exists, and now you really need to see if people would actually use it. The principle around doing this is commitment. So some of the most advanced and more cash-intensive tests will be to actually build a minimal version of the end product that you have in mind with some of the most fundamental features, and you want to go and launch that with a specific set of your target audience to see how many people use it consistently to potentially see how many people may pay for it. And that's one of the most time-intensive and high-risk tests because you could spend all your money and time making that and then realize through a test that actually you've missed the mark. But there are some tests that you can do which are less risky. So for example, building prototypes and concepts and then using that to potentially launch a pre-sale campaign where you want to see how many people can sign up and pre-buy what you're purportedly going to build for them. So things like crowdfunding campaigns before things are fully built and manufactured and shipped out falls into this category. You see a lot of startups saying, here is a, a mock-up, here's a video, here is a concept of what it is that we have in mind and how it's going to be great, but we haven't actually built it yet. How many people are willing to part with money to be able to get early access to it? This itself is a test because you're proving that people are willing to part with money for something that they believe is valuable. And you also have very simple tests like landing page tests building a website using some of the online tools like WordPress or, or Wix or Squarespace, and then running some sort of advertising campaign targeting who you believe to be your target audience and looking at the conversion. Most products these days tend to need some sort of landing page or, or product page that describes what they do. And you can add an advertising campaign to try and track the conversion. And along with that, you have certain other assets that you can make explainer videos for example that go on the landing page dropbox famously validated their market pretty well by creating a stop motion video of how dropbox would work and then putting that on a landing page to see how many people would sign up and that's a test as well anything that you believe is going to convince someone to either part with their money or their time or their reputation will be a test sign of commitment. Exactly. Those are the three things as a sign of commitment. People giving you money, that's nice and simple. People willing to spend more time to test something, to use something, to give you feedback because they feel it's valuable. That's still evidence of potential and, and reputation, whether they're willing to introduce you to other people. Use their voucher code and give that to their friends and make your proposition more viral. These are all examples of commitment. So anything that helps people to part with time, money, or reputation is really a good test. What if the feedback you get from the interviews actually tells you that your hypothesis was wrong and that it's not validating that your idea has potential? Then what should you do? Let's put it this way. You gather data and information through these interviews and the information is either going to corroborate your beliefs now or they're not. If they don't, then they're going to support some other beliefs and some other idea. So that's why it's so important because out of these interviews, you will then be able to understand, well, if this wasn't the real pain point as I had thought, and now I know that this other thing is the real challenge. So let me go back to the drawing board and have a think about what that could mean and whether there's a new idea. And that kind of pivoting is fundamental.
And this kind of pivot happens not only after simple, easy to do tests like customer discovery interviews, but companies and startups do this after they've perhaps spent loads and loads of money to launch uh, a bells and whistles uh, product mm -hmm. and they realize customers aren't using it the way we thought they were, but actually they're using it in a different way. Maybe we need to actually change and pivot. The difference is in that scenario, you've wasted a lot more money and time before you get to that. And therefore the other underlying concept here is doing easy to do tests to validate your most fundamental assumptions first is going to help you save time and money. It's going to help iteratively de-risk your idea. And you should only be spending more money and time and resources on an idea as you see the risk of it decreasing, as you see the potential of it being slowly but surely proven through the test that you're running. So if you think one step past that, there's no recipe an entrepreneur must go through. It's not like a straight line from idea to scaling. But once you have that idea validation, what's the next step? Is it a deep dive into the market? Is it more strategy? Is it building the product? How do you take it one step further? So what we've talked about is the trunk of the tree, the core skill set that a founder would need to have to be able to run with an idea to go and validate and explore something. But to build a viable and feasible, scalable business, you need more than just that. Of course, that's why all of these accelerators, startup learning programs and initiatives all have lots of different aspects to them, not just how do you go and find a problem market fit, but also how do you manage financials? How do you raise money? How do you manage a team? How do you hire talent, et cetera, et cetera? Because these are also core aspects to scaling a business. So for me, in the earlier stages, the kind of traditional trajectory that most entrepreneurs will be told to go down is to gather the evidence so that you can go and convince investors to give you funding. You pitch to an investor and let's assume that they've actually given you the time of day to look at your pitch. The first thing they're going to say is what data or evidence do you have to prove that people want what you have? And this is going to be something that people are willing to pay money for. But once you've answered those questions, at the same time, you also need to be thinking about where do you place yourself in the landscape of what you're trying to do? So the competitive landscape is also something that's very important. There's a link between that and the, the validation that you do through actually engaging with and speaking with your target customers. You do also learn how they view your competitors. They may say, actually, there's a great solution that I'm using right now and, and this ticks all my boxes. I'm not really interested in anything else. In which case, one of your baseline assumptions has been invalidated. But having a good understanding of where you fit within the competitive landscape is very important. And the key thing here is to think about from the perspective of your customers or your target users, how would they see what you're trying to do in relation to others? So not from your perspective of the value that you're giving them, but from their own words. Why would they choose you? Basically? Yeah, exactly. So oftentimes you see these competitor maps with X and Y sure. axis. And then you see the x-axis or the y-axis are things like business model or the way that the product is delivered. That's not a great way to map out your competitive landscape because it's not from the perspective of your customers. A better way would be to actually use the value proposition from their perspective to put onto these axes and show that there is a real gap because that really would be facing the music. And oftentimes when you do it that way, 
a lot of entrepreneurs realize that actually there is very little gap or space that they're trying to target. Thank you so much, Jamie. So now we jump over to Biliana Frey to get the perspective from a founder. Give us some context about Orbit. What is it that you're spending day in doing? Orbit, which by the way, spelled with two eyes, dot AI, because you're not a real startup unless you misspell your name. Essentially, what we do is we connect the best people to one another within a community. We are a very smart matchmaker that seamlessly invites a community to stay in touch and forms those super meaningful, deeper connections, member to member. And essentially the evolution of the product came from us having our own community, which we run using the usual tools of newsletters, in-person events, a lot of serendipitous interactions here and there. And after every event, we were blown away how much members love meeting one another and how many phenomenal connections were happening. But we were getting that feeling that it just wasn't enough. If you're part of a community, you want to continuously meet relevant people for you. And you don't want it to be random. You don't want it to be one-off. And we had this light bulb moment that from running our own community, our impact could be way bigger if we figure out a way to continuously bring the right people together over and over again on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis, on a monthly basis. And it's been super, super exciting since pivoting from running our own community to becoming a software tool for other community managers out there. One of the things that we're talking a lot about is when you have an idea, how do you move that idea forward and take those baby steps to validating that idea and moving it to action? So if you can go back in time a bit and remember the initial steps, you mentioned briefly what the original idea for Orbit was. Tell us about how you took those first steps. First of all, I was getting a ton of ideas. Most of the time I would get very excited about something. Then I'd wake up and think that was a really silly idea. How could I even think this could be a business? The original idea was born from this belief that you don't know what job is right for you if you don't experience it first. We have less visibility into career choices. That kind of seemed crazy. So we were like, well, let's solve it and let's solve it in a pretty drastic way. People's careers are so important and learning from peers is so important that people would pay for something like this to see who would be up for sharing their professional days and who would be happy to, to pay for this and jump with a stranger in their office and see what the culture of that company actually is, what the coffee tastes like, what they can learn from a peer in a different industry that they otherwise would never meet. It was something that I was thinking about a lot. When I first thought of it, I noticed that I can't let go of it. And then I started validating it in conversations with others. Not the mother question, like, hey, what would you think about this idea? And ask really close friends, but dropping hints about the problem in conversation, like, what do you think is the problem with identifying the best next step for you? And how do you best learn? Is it from blogs or online learning? A lot more people were learning from people. I've always learned best from people. And then I realized, okay, this is not so crazy. I'm not the only one that really learns best from other people. And also is very experiential. And then I identified a potential co-founder that had also switched a couple of careers, tested the waters, became close, shared the full idea. He was fully, fully on board. So that's the other thing. When you come up with that vision, find the right allies early on. Literally then step-by-step was opening up to other people that I respected about the idea investing a couple of hundred on savings to see what the brand could look like and get excited about it. And then once we decided to pursue it, seriously had enough even anecdotal market research that this could be a need, put the brand out there, put the vision behind it, and it just resonated. 
in a marketplace, it's a little bit about chicken and egg. Is it first about demand, then about supply? We knew that there's demand. So we prepared with 15, 20 hosts in New York, which initially were warm contacts or people that we thought would be up for being shadowed in more creative areas like founders, for example, or an Instagram fashion influencer and the founder of a food company, et cetera, et cetera. So we found the first 20 and then we put the website up and got the first booking. Someone found us on Instagram and it was the most exciting thing. I actually showed up at the shattering experience being like, oh, I just had a meeting in the neighborhood <laughs> to take photos and to literally see how two strangers are shattering each other. The experiences like that are completely priceless. And then you get emboldened. Finding a first customer is actually the hardest part. If you find the first one, then the next 10 will follow and then the next 100 will follow. It's just taking that first step. Once you find an idea that you find it's really personal and you're obsessed with, take the first step to find the right allies on board, test it a little bit, but don't overtest it. I'm not a fan of super extensive and analytical business frameworks. I think those can really stifle creativity. And at the end of the day, you need a pinch of madness and, and boldness to do it. What a great story. And it sounds like... Last March, a year ago, there was another bump in the journey and you pivoted. What were some of the initial tests you did to say, yeah, this is the direction we should take orbit? Last year, when we had to cancel all shattering experiences, we very quickly started thinking, how can we create our own community digitally? And we had a mailing list of about 10,000 people around the world. This idea of peer learning across industries really resonated with them. So we started very quickly experimenting and speaking to our hosts and shadowers. Hey, if you were to do this experience virtually, what would it take? The previous format was a day in person. And we quickly learned that nobody actually wants to virtually shadow for hours and hours and having a little icon on the screen, Zoom fatigue is real. Everyone, however, did say, I would love to speak to a peer. I'd love to speak to someone that's interested in the same topics as me and is in a similar company, similar level. So we quickly adapted our matchmaking algorithm, which was matching people for these in-person experiences to match them online and say, if you want to speak to a peer on the topic of, and we said trending topics like remote work, managing remotely, adapting and thriving to a crisis, topics like that. If you want to opt in and be matched with a peer in our community, opt in here. And then they filled in a very quick flow, 30 seconds, sharing a little bit more about their role, company, years of experience, what time zone they're on. And our algorithm then matched them, send them an introduction. So it would be like, hey, Billy and Jennifer, you were matched because you're both interested in this topic. You have similar years of experience. You're both founders of B2B businesses and you're both available at this time. So we scheduled it for you and it's in your calendar. And people really appreciate it. Super seamless experience of... I basically invested 30 seconds of my time and I got this amazing match and had a super quality conversation with someone that's facing the same challenges and we workshopped the solution together. Started seeing these really, really powerful testimonials and people opting in over and over again, validating that this is something that is needed and needed on a continuous basis. And naturally, we were already in environments in a network of other community managers. So when we started talking about how we've pivoted, everyone was saying, oh, man, I would put money behind something like this. So then the light bulbs went off. Wow. Rather than helping just our community, we could be helping everyone. Every community struggles with this. The world is made up already of a ton of communities. We're all self-organized in alumni groups, companies. We love certain products and we're organized in groups of other customers that have the same needs and interests as us. We're passively organized and surrounded by the best people to help us. We're just not connected with them. And 
being the company that actually creates those connections on existing infrastructure of communities, we found that super, super motivating. We took a quarter to build an MVP and start finding early partners on board. Those people that said, oh, we could use that. We'd put money behind it. We discounted the product early on. We offered free pilots and then we launched fully in October 2020. And we've been growing head spinningly since then with global outreach. The last three months have been 30% month over month growth and really now serious recurrent revenues. We're now closing our seed round led by an existing client, which we're very passionate about that they love and know the product. And we'll be heading to raise series A by January next year. I'm super excited to run and scale fast from here. Super exciting. Congratulations on the rapid growth in the past year. I think it's a testament to the need. So to close our episode, I want to ask you, Biliana, the question that we ask all our interviewees and get your perspective. The entrepreneurial journey is composed of many steps. Which step towards growing a successful venture is most important and why? The people that you surround yourself with, identifying those allies early on, identifying the best early team members that you're going to grow from, finding investors that genuinely care about your building. And it's not just an attractive investment where they just see their return. When people care genuinely, you will always perform better than other companies that are, as I said, hacking products and seeing what sticks. I am in the people business because I'm very people driven. And to me, business is very, very personal. So that's my two pennies on the question. Thank you so much, Jamie and Biliana, for joining us. Your insights shared are invaluable, and we wish you tons and tons of success. Hey, listeners, go check out studiozell.com for so many fabulous resources. And also be sure to check out orbit.ai to discover your next community connection. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I want to say thanks for this conversation. Any questions or thoughts from anyone out there, feel free to get in touch. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have an awesome day, awesome week. You too. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, check out the digital toolkit, which includes a short list of practical tools on this topic. The website is bit.ly slash ASAP toolkit. That's bit.ly slash ASAP toolkit. Don't forget to capitalize the ASAP. The resources are out there and you have plenty of people to support you along the way. And as always, we're cheering you on. 